Could you open up to Matthew 28? Matthew 28. We are at the tomorrow. Next week's going to be the very end, but Matthew 28 is the chapter that we have been working up to. It's the crescendo of the book of Matthew. Um, this is a very important passage. This book, I'll tell you, the Bible itself, there's many reasons to love this book. Uh, one of the reasons you could say people love this book is because you get to know God, what he's like, what his heart is like, what he cares about, how he thinks about you. So one of the reasons we try to understand this book is to know God who exists. Even though we don't see him, even though we can't look up and see past these ceiling and the clouds, he's there, he exists, and this book tells us what he's like. Not only is this book um, revelation, but it's beautiful, it encourages the words themselves have helped many people to make it through the darkest valleys in the world. And uh, it's, it's just a godsend. But I'd also say I love, I love this book because it tells the truth. It tells you how life really is. We live in a world where everybody, everybody and their brother lies. It's kind of the natural way of life. Anything you turn on, the uh, television or even on your telephones, they're lying to you. People lie. A lot of people lie for good intentions. They want you to feel good. So they'll say, yeah, everything's great. You're a wonderful person. Believe your dreams. Sounds good, but that's a lie. But then you have people on the other side that are nothing but pessimists. Life stinks. Nothing's going to be good. You know what? You're all going to die. See you later. You know, so we live in a world of lies. So when you come to the Bible, it will tell you the truth. It will tell you how reality really is, both the good and the bad. But the thing I especially like about the Bible is it tells you how to perceive reality. It actually begins in darkness. It begins in the night. It begins with turmoil. It begins with sin. And it ends with the morning. And when the morning comes, it's when it swallows up all of the pain, all of the darkness. What's really interesting is, um, let's take a Jewish day. A Jewish day is different than a, um, what I would say, our day. Our day begins in the morning and ends at night. A Jewish day begins in twilight, and then you sleep most of the day in the darkness. But then in the morning, that's when things start coming alive, and it, it just gets brighter and brighter. So the full light of day, as Proverbs says. The biblical account is the same thing. We have just been through the darkest moment ever in recorded history. Last three sermons have been about the rejection by Judas. The garden where Jesus was, he was sweating drops of blood. And last week when he was nailed to a cross. Well, today we're going to talk about the morning. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. That is the biblical way of things. Right now, some of you guys are in night. I mean, life is hard. Actually, BJ and Bethany is talking to your mom before. She doesn't like me mentioning her. She doesn't like you guys leaving, I gotta tell you. She's weeping right now, but I want to tell her, Sherry, wait till you see. Give them a couple, give them a couple months and it will be joy. Pregnancy. The baby's in the womb and it's bad labor, bad labor, but in the morning when that baby's born, you forget all of the darkness. Today, Matthew 28, it's the morning. We're going to read it. 
We're going to talk about what that happened on that day. And then I've got my yellow pad, and so my, this is a yellow pad message. What that means is I have written down thoughts and ideas just from meditation on this verse. Seven truths of the resurrection of that morning that still can happen to you today. This didn't just happen one day. This can happen in your life this afternoon. So let's read through this and... Hopefully God will bless you. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 28. It says, After the Sabbath, so Jesus died on Friday, Sabbath was Saturday, then we come to dawn on the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday, because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. It's not a Sabbath day, it's a resurrection day. So after the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So that's what Matthew wrote. Let's kind of try to understand this today. What, what really went on? So... Jesus died on Friday. They took him down off the cross because by twilight it became Sabbath. So he had to be buried before Sabbath because Sabbath you're not allowed as a Jew to work or to be around dead bodies. So these ladies who loved him dearly had some anointing oil and cloths that they wanted to perfume his body with, probably myrrh and some other spices. But they had to wait for Sabbath to be over because of the Sabbath law. So in their mind, he's dead, all of their hope is gone, is gone, and they're walking to the tomb with a, not just a heavy heart, but this God, this guy who said he's God is dead. Their hope is done. They get to the tomb, and as they're walking to the tomb, probably head down, sorrowful, probably still wiping tears off the side of their eyes, there starts to be shaking. The earth is trembling and the dust is coming off the sides of the hillside. And all of a sudden, a massive angel comes, stands in front of the tomb, and rolls it away. I don't know if it was hard for him. He probably took his pinky finger and just kind of rolled it away. And then he hops on top, and I can just imagine him sitting up there. His legs are probably dangling a little bit. You know, he's picking his legs a little bit. One of my favorite scenes, one of my favorite movies is Lord of the Rings. The Two Towers... You have about two little hobbits who are sitting on top of this wall and they're just enjoying the spoils of war. I think that's what the angel is doing. He's sitting on top of this rock 
feet are dangling, and he's probably smiling. Meanwhile, while he's smiling, these tough guards who are supposed to watch the tomb with the seal on it, if you get close to it, they're going to kill you. They are almost frozen dead. They're looking at this angel, and you can their, their color flushes out of their face, and they're probably just trembling. It says like they almost died. And the angel looks at the ladies. He could care less about the soldiers. Looks at the ladies, and he says, What are you guys worried about? What are you worried about? He rose again, just as he said. Were you listening? Weren't you listening to him? Almost kind of probably confused. And they said, well, where is he? And he says, come here, come here. They go into the tomb, and there's, just, there's clothes in there. And he said, he's risen. He's, he's out of here. He's gone. Go to Galilee, and Jesus will meet you there. So they go. They take off. And while they take off, Jesus probably jumped out from behind some rose bushes, because you know that song, the dew is still on the roses. And he said, greetings. How are you? Hey, they probably were, what in the world? They saw Jesus, they fell at his feet, and they started worshiping him there. And Jesus said, go tell the brothers, I'll meet you in Galilee. That's what happened. Kind of a very odd story. That story that I just told you is why you're here this morning. That story that I just told you is what has given us meaning for the last 2,000 years. That story is strange. It's very, really weird. Either it's true, either this story is true, or what we are doing right now is one of the stupidest things you could ever do. I choose this one over here. It's true. And so because it's true, I have kind of like a uh, surveyor who comes with his yellow pad and writes stuff down. I've come with seven. Jared Coates, how are you doing? I didn't see you there. It's very nice to see you. I think you might like this sermon, Jared. This one's for you. So I have seven truths that are true of the resurrection. I'm calling them transferable. What I mean by transferable, it's they're not static. They didn't just happen on this day. You can take these for your own today. Seven of them. Seven observations. And the first glorious truth is just about the stone itself. And I want to say this, when you look at it, God is the one who rolls away stones. And I'm going to use the idea of a stone as something that blocks the way to your hope, to the one you love, to the obstacle that's in your way. God rolls away stones. He rolls away obstacles. He rolls away ignorance and blindness, not so he can break out. Like the stone didn't hold Jesus back. I think we have this idea that, oh man, if that angel didn't come, Jesus would be stuck in the tomb, poor little fella. When he rolled away the, the stone, he was already gone because he is God. And as God, the stone isn't a thick little Im thick impediment, it's a tiny little veil. Death is a little veil that he's just on the other side of, and he can break through it at any time because he's God. So the angel didn't roll away the stone so he could let Jesus out. He rolled away the stone so we could come in and see. That's what revelation means. We are blind to his wonder, his beauty, his power, his strength. And it takes God and the Holy Spirit to roll away our ignorance. Not so God is, will become alive, but so that we can see who he really is. 
Like right now, whether we, whether we want to believe it or not, the sun is shining somewhere. But I don't, I don't see it because look at this, this roof. This roof makes the sun not exist, right? Because I can't see it, it doesn't exist. And you in your mind are like, no, I know that. I know the sun is still there. But somehow we believe if somebody's an atheist and they choose not to believe, that means God does not exist. Poor little God. That's so silly. It's so silly. God is not trapped by our unbelief. He is not captive to our will. Our unbelief is our problem. It's our blindness. It's the same kind of same thing with anxiety. A lot of people think because they're anxious or they're worried or they're complaining, that means they that that the effects that God can enter and can't. It's just everything's over, it's hopeless. No, that's just your problem. You can live on your anxiety and worry all you want, but your anxiety and worry won't stop God and his promises from coming true. You can't be an impediment to God. It's just going to ruin your life. I'd also say that we need him to see. We need God in order to see clearly. We need him to roll away the stone. And it's simple for him. He just takes his pinky and rolls away your little unbelief. Jesus still exists with full power even if people choose not to believe. So you could ask somebody, let's say somebody in here is not a Christian, do you believe? And they'll probably say, no. No, I don't. I don't believe, okay? And we get kind of scared of that. Oh, your unbelief must kind of keep God away. Actually, God sees that as a challenge. Good luck keeping him out. Good luck. Why do we get so nervous about unbelief? That doesn't intimidate God. Is, so, is God subject to our atheistic cage? No. No. You cannot stop him because just because you are certain of your intellectual convictions He's a lot bigger than you ever realize, which brings us actually to truth number two. And here's how I want to kind of present truth number two. About, I'm not sure how many years ago it was, but there was a marathon in Chicago, or Boston, and there was a bombing. Do you remember the bombing in Boston at this marathon? What did Boston, Boston started taking a phrase. Do you remember what they said? Does anybody know, remember what they said in Boston after the bomber? Boston Strong. So the whole city would say, Boston strong. We even had a, a guy in our own community who was hurt by some wires, and he'd say, Kyle, strong. And this whole idea of strong, it's a pride in a city's resolve or grit or determination or ability to overcome. So when you say Boston strong, what we're saying is though things may seem bleak, Boston's going to pull out. It's going to overcome. It's got determination and grit. We need to start adopting this phrase. Heaven strong. I think we don't see heaven in the right way. I've often heard people are too heavenly minded for any earthly good as if heaven is this whispery, vapory place where harps are playing and people are floating on clouds that just have no strength, where it's just the opposite. Heaven is like full of power. So compared to the soldiers... So these soldiers, these soldiers are hired to put a seal on the tomb and stand there with the sword. And if anybody comes close, you got to kill them. You got to kill them because these soldiers are so strong. What happens when the angel shows up? Why don't they kill the angel? Because heaven's strong. 
Are, is, is the angel intimidated by the soldiers? No, the soldiers, the soldiers froze as if dead, these tough guys. Somebody came up to me be, before the first service and they got a tattoo of a butterfly. And he said, I know you don't like tattoos. And I said, no, no, no. It's not that I don't like tattoos. I don't like when guys get tattoos because they think they're cool. You know, like they put barbed wire, they put neck tattoos, and then often they'll shave their head and get plugs. Like, look how cool I am. Try standing up to an angel. Like, seriously. I think what happens to us is because we've never been to heaven, we don't know how strong heaven is. Let me give you an illustration. When I have... So my wife and I had our two baby boys. Our boys, we hold them in our hands, you know, like we're lifting them in our hands. And we're thinking, man, we have a baby. And then they started to become toddlers. And we look at their toddlers and go, look how they're grown up compared to what they used to be. Man, they grow so fast. And then I can remember they played rocket football. When they played rocket football, it'd be like, my kids are getting old. Look how strong they are. <laughs> and then they would go into like JV football. And I remember they started getting like pectorals and muscles tries. I'm like, man, they're getting strong. And then they play varsity football. And varsity football, wow, they're like blowing up. They're getting really big. But when they were JV players, I thought they reached the height of their ability. Now they're varsity players. I saw my son yesterday at the college level. I touched his chest. I was like, what? that guy is strong compared to what he was back here. But when they're back here, we've never seen him up here. So we don't know how to compare. So when they grow older, we can only retroactively compare. What we do with heaven is I think we have no idea how strong it is, so we just assume it's nothing. But when heaven breaks in, nobody can stop it. Their clothes were as white as lightning. Have you ever seen white lightning? Every time they see Jesus in the Bible, so every time a holy person sees Jesus in the Bible... Do you know what they do? Like, I'm talking about his glorious form. It says they fall on their face, and they say, whoa, I am undone. I am dead. If heaven broke through right now, you and I would die. But when we pray, that power enters our world. We can tap into it. Heaven's strong. You guys, why are we so worried about this world overwhelming us when we have angels that are sent as servants, when we have the Lord of heaven who will come to us in our darkest night? It's nothing for him. Our problem is nothing for him. And God's strength is just beyond the veil. That rock to us might be thick, but to him, he just walks right through it. That's just a thought. Truth number three. This one's really cool. Look at verse 6. Take it kind of slow. Let's begin in verse 5. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, so here the women, the women were coming to the tomb, the angel sitting on top of the rock, the soldiers by this time, it says they're shaking and they're like dead men. So then you get to verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And then just read verse 6. Watch, watch what it says. He's not here. He has risen. Just as he said. We often say, just as he said. No, the, the angel's like, don't you remember? He said this. Why are you so surprised? When did he say this? Look at Matthew 26, 32. 
So Matthew 26, 32. So it's right before Jesus is dying. In my Bible, it says Jesus predicts his, uh, Peter's denial. It's right before his death. Matthew 26, 31. It says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away in account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So if I hear that, let's say I'm one of the disciples. It's the night before Jesus dies. And he says, you guys are all going to fall away because of me. And I would go, oh, no. Oh, no. But look at verse 32. And he just kind of matter-of-factly says, but after I've risen, uh, I'll go ahead of you and the Galilee. Uh, wait, time out. Time out a second. If I was a disciple, I'd say, what did you just say? Yeah, after I've risen, I'll meet you. Wait, what, what did you just say? After I've risen. Why didn't the disciples go, what do you mean? Tell me more about that. It's as if they didn't even listen. He gives the greatest promise ever, and they just ignore it. How many of us do the same thing with his Bible every single day? He gives you some of the greatest promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then when it's dark, we say, where are you? God doesn't care. Weren't you listening? He's right there, just as he said. So the third observation would be this. If God says it, it is so. His word, his word is the most powerful energy, the most powerful substance known to man. Look at 2 Peter 3, 5. 2 Peter 3, 5. This is very important. And I'm kind of sharing this with you, not because it's a sermon, it's how I think. Because I want you guys to think. Like the Bible, I want you to think through what the Bible says, because it will rescue you in some of your most despairing moments of life. Because I know you're just like me. I, I probably would never have heard Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead. All I would focus on, all I would focus on would be, you're all going to scatter and you're going to die. Actually, I was talking to somebody, I won't say who this is. If they want to get mad at me, they can. And as talking to them, have you ever heard of electric shock therapy? It's when you, somebody's so depressed, you get electric shock therapy, and it kind of shocks you back in, and you're happy again. But you forget everything. You forget everything. So I say, when you forget, when, do you forget people's faces and names? Yes, yeah, sometimes, they said. How about you forget, like, memories? Oh, yeah, forget memories. And then I asked this question. I said, do you forget people's insults? And the, their relatives said, oh no, they never forget that. It is said, I can give you 70 compliments, but if I criticize you one time, that's all you'll remember. I think it's the same way with, you, with everything bad we remember. But promises, we kind of let them, they don't mean anything. Why? Why are we so quick to hang on to the negative? So look at uh, 2 Peter 3, 5. Let's begin in verse 3 because it kind of is going to talk about how the world is. This is how the world is. Verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So when the world is getting close to the end, just be ready. People are going to be scoffers. That means they're going to mock God, they're going to mock you, and nobody's going to really be kind. So don't be surprised. Verse 4. They will say, 
You got to say it like this. <laughs> Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So people just say, hey, signs are pretty obvious. He's coming back. Whatever. Whatever. They've always been saying that. And then you got verse 5. But they, but they, these are the scoffers, and these are the very smart people in our day and age, but they deliberately forgot or forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water by water. So the heavens and everything that you see was made by God's word. And it says people will deliberately forget that. The point of this is that everything that is, it is because God said it. So if God says it, it is. So if he gives you promises, it is. That's why if you go to 2 Peter 1, this is amazing to me. This is one of those verses I don't fully understand it, but I will spend my whole rest of my life trying to understand it. 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4. 2 Peter 1, 2. Grace and peace be yours. Like, wouldn't you like grace? God's continual blessing and peace. Yeah, but it's yours in abundance. Well, how do I get it? Through the knowledge of God, that means knowing God and Jesus our Lord. So knowing God and Jesus our Lord, knowing his word, grace and peace are yours. Now keep going, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life, that means to make it through the day, godliness, to be a to be a person that glorifies him, to be a good person, through what? Our knowledge of him. So again, we can have power, grace, peace, through knowledge of knowing God, who's called us by his own glory and goodness. Look at verse 4. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So the access, the way I grab his power, the way I grab his power that makes me good, the way I grab his power to make me right, are through his promises. His word. I believe by faith in his word, and if I do, watch what happens. Through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of this world by cause, by evil human desires. You can participate with God, meaning God will affect your life, and you will escape corruption, even today. But it's all based on this. Do you believe his word? If he said it, it is so. It's up to you. Let's go to number four. The fourth one is just a quick, this is a quick one. It's a pretty obvious one, but this is true all through Scripture. So Jesus is dead, and he rises from the dead. So he was dead, and when God acts, he comes alive. So you have these soldiers who think they're alive, and when Jesus rises from the dead, they are as though they're dead. That's kind of how it's written. In verse, if you go back to Matthew 28, Verse 4, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So the dead man becomes alive, but the people who think they're the toughest and the coolest, who are alive because they don't have God, they're like dead men. So you could say it like this. With God, the dead are made alive, but without him, the alive stay dead. That's just an axiom all through Scripture. That's really what the resurrection means. What's the definition of resurrection? It's life. After you die. The problem with so many Christians is they've never died. The hardest part of being a pastor 
is to get people to die. It's the hardest part, hands down. What do I mean by that? Okay, so the way people die is by repenting, by saying, I, my life is a wreck. I don't want it anymore. I want new life. But I have to repent. I've got to really change, give up, so he can come in. Grace, that is his continual blessing. Grace comes after faith. After I believe that I need him. Why do I need him? Because I can't do it on my own. I'm dead. And then you can say joy comes after the weeping. Weeping over my sin. Weeping over how I've hurt so many people. Weeping over my own inability to be good. Weeping over my addictions, weeping over my rotten mouth. I'm sick of being me. And then when I'm sick of being me, then he comes in and I'm grateful for how he saved me. That's joy. Joy is being thankful. The flesh, the problem with our flesh, flesh is pride. Or my love of me, problem with the flesh is it keeps crawling off the cross. All right, let's go to fifth truth. This one is, we find in verse 5 and verse 8. Verse 5. So the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. So they were afraid. And he says, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. So basically he says, go to Galilee. So verse 8, you look at verse 8. So the women hurried away. They hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid, but yet they were filled with joy. So you can say it like this, true worship, when you really get it, it mingles both fear and joy. It's not worship if it's only fear. That's Islam. Just to be scared of God. That's fundamentalism. That's old time Baptist. Right? Yell at me for not wearing a tie. Oh, God hates me. That's not worship. That's what that is, is that submission. That's a bullying God. I'm going to bully you and make you scared. No. But also, it's not just joy, where everything's just hunky-dory. Hey, whatever I do is free. I can just live any way I want. La, 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 la. What that does, that turns God into a nobody. It turns him into my butler, who says, what can I do for you? Well, get me this, this, and this, but ignore everything I've done. Both of these separated don't work, but when you bring in fear that I'm dealing with the God who lives on high, his throne is above the circle of the earth, but yet he loves me, then I want to worship. So I'd say my convictions about true worship, number one, is you will never really come to the truth unless you see God as God. You just won't. That was my first 23 years of life. I saw God as an old man, not as God. So when you see him as God, here's truth. God, you begin to understand that God has the right to do as he wishes. He has every right to do as he wishes. It's his right. It's his world. Did you know, like what's really interesting, this is really hard to believe, but God has every right to take people in death anytime he wants. It's hard it's hard to accept that, but it's his world. Because did you know everybody dies? But we have this, in our brain, we have, like, what is the acceptable age people should be allowed to live where it's not really, is it, should we be allowed to live 
So we're 71 point whatever, because that's the average age? Well, if that's true, Jesus died at 33. But what if somebody dies at 33? Well, that's not fair. What is fair? God, God is the author and finisher of our faith, and we have to let him have that. That's hard, I understand, but he's God. But secondly, I'd say this, is that God never makes mistakes. If he's God, he knows what he's doing. I was talking to a guy yesterday who's, my son plays football at Wheaton. My son, two years ago, tore his ACL. It was terrible. But two years later, I think it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to him. I'm talking to this dad whose son just tore his ACL a couple weeks ago, and he's getting surgery tomorrow. I'm talking to the dad. And I said, you know, I know this, you won't like this. I said, but the tearing of my son's ACL might have been the greatest thing that ever happened to him. He says, you know what's funny is God just convicted me of that in my prayer the other day that God is going to do things that I could never do, and he knows how to discipline in ways I don't. And it's always the best. Third thing that's really hard is God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. We actually believe if I come to church, I'm doing him a favor and I'm making him better. He doesn't care, really, in a sense of he doesn't need you. Because he's God. He's already perfect. However, that's, that side's my conviction on fear. My side on joy is the surprising thing about God is he loved me first. That's amazing to me. So what that means is, even though he has the right to do as he wishes, you know what he wishes? He wishes to have me. I'm his number one wish. What? And not only does God never make mistakes, that means then that me, who I am, is not a mistake, and everything that's led up to my salvation, and everything that is going on in my life, is not a mistake. And then the third thing is, even though God doesn't need me, he wants me. That's shocking. And that's the side of joy. That's what causes me to bow my knee and say, I exalt thee like we did. Truth number six. Truth number six is found in verse nine. And watch how it plays out. It's really interesting. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, ran to tell his disciples. So they're running. They're going to go and tell the disciples. And then all of a sudden, verse 9 begins by saying, suddenly, Jesus came, or Jesus met them. Greeting! Like all of a sudden, I don't, did he pop out of like from behind the building? They're running and he pops up. Hey! <laughs> What's happening? All of a sudden, he shows up personally to them to confirm that he is indeed alive. Jesus always will make his truth personal. He doesn't want it just to be head knowledge. He wants it to be owned knowledge. Here, let me give you an illustration. So, um, my salvation story is, I ran from God for 23 years, and I can remember he was, my life was sort of miserable, actually. And I knew that he was, hunting after me. They call God the heavenly bloodhound. He comes after you and he wants you. And one day he wanted me. I'm on Highway 44 in Ohio. I pull my car over and I know that God was talking to me. I don't, I don't know how to explain it to you, but he was dealing with me with two issues and I had to deal with it. The first one was this. Do you believe? 
This is what I had to come to the truth. Do you believe that Jesus was real and exists today? It was like that was the that was the most important thing in my life at that moment. How I answer this is going to change everything from that moment on. And all I could say is yes, I believe he exists. I believe him. Then the second part is the hardest part. If you actually believe that I exist, then why don't you do what I say? Just because you believe something, if you believe this person exists, that means you believe he's God, he made your life, that he is amazing, then why don't you obey him and do what he says? If my dad, like if my dad was, as a kid, growing up, there's sometimes my dad would tell me to do something, and sometimes I ignore him and I just walk right by him. My dad didn't deal with that too nice. He'd say, Chris, come here. And when he'd say, Chris, come here, I'd be like, oh no. Sit down. You just completely ignored me. I told you to do something. Why didn't you do it? If I would just keep ignoring him, that would be the worst offense I can imagine. How many of us offend God every single day by saying, yeah, God, we believe you, but we don't do a word he says. We don't make it personal. He doesn't just give us this just to blow steam. He gives this because he loves us. And he wants you to make it personal. And to me, that's the only way you can tell if truth is really true. And when you don't take it personal, it's an offense, I think. Behold, I stand at the door of knock. If anybody opens the door, I'll come in. And I'll dinner with them. And I'll give my life to them, and you'll give my life to me. But he's knocking. He wants to make it personal. Truthfully, when I think of Jesus, what's really hard is to talk about somebody that's invisible. Like I often will say, what is it about Jesus that people don't want to believe in him? And I think it's because he's invisible. I really do. I, I think because we don't see him. But there's a verse that says, even though I don't see him, I love him. And I'm filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's how you know you're his. Even though you don't see him, you just love him. Do you? Now the last um, truth. I've got to kind of lead you up to it. I want you to go back to Matthew 27 and verse 62. This is really important. Especially in second service, because I think in second service I get more people that think like this. Watch. Matthew 27, 62 to 65. Here's what it says. So the next day, this is right after Jesus died and they went to bury him. In the tomb, the next day, the one after preparation day, that's the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember, listen closely what they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver, that they're calling Jesus the deceiver, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. They knew what he said. Keep that in mind. So the deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. 
This last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate listened to him in verse 65. Take it as a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So they knew, the elders knew that Jesus said, on the third day I'm going to rise again. They knew it. They heard it. So they said, we need to have a guard. So they knew a guard was posted. So that means this is serious business. We're putting a seal on it. Do not cross by order of Pilate or you will die. And they got soldiers there. So they knew it was highly secure. They knew. So then we go to 11, 14 of, verse 20, of chapter 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. What guards? Guards that were at the tomb. They went into the city and they reported to the chief priests everything that happened. They knew. They knew about the angel. They knew about the stone. They knew. So what do they do? I mean, you have all the evidence in the world for the truth of the resurrection. I mean, you how do you assail this truth? They even put a guard up, but the guards came and said, Listen, guys, this is what happened. So what do they do? When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. This report gets the governor, will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. They knew he rose again. They knew it, but they didn't like it. So what did they do? They shut it up. They came up with excuses and lies, and they paid people off. So three things. I think all I think number one, people who claim that they don't believe in God because there's no evidence, that they just are smarter than everybody else, I think they know the truth. They know. They just don't want to believe it. I was talking to my son the other day. We were talking late at night. I was talking to some people that don't believe me. He said, why does it seem like atheists are always angry? You don't really find happy atheists. Because they know. And if you're an atheist, are you angry at God? Why would you be angry at somebody that doesn't exist? Because he lets bad things... Oh, wait, wait, that slipped out. My brother died. If he was real, he wouldn't. If who was real? He doesn't exist. What are you mad at? Who, who are you going to be mad at? No. You can be mad at a void, at random chance. At, be mad at evolution. Why aren't people mad at evolution? Doggone, I'm mad at evolution. Because they know. So I would say, all atheists, unbelievers, angry, progressive, combative, Twitter trolls, drunks at the bar, they know. They know. Second thing is to shut out the spirit of conviction, the spirit that says, God's real, Jesus is real, and he wants your life. To shut out this spirit of conviction, they invent lies. Tell them. Tell them that the body was stolen. Yeah, but if we tell them the body was stolen, we didn't do our job, and we're going to die. As, don't worry, I'll pay off. I don't know. And which is the third thing. Why is money so persuasive? Always seems to work. Money seems to get people to believe in things that they don't really believe in, especially like money that buys entertainment, pleasure, 
and big cars and cabins and rich salaries. If I get that, if you give me enough money, I won't believe. I'll pay you off. As somebody once said, Satan has deep pockets. So the question is, do you know? Do you know? Do you know that your night, your stone can be rolled away and it can be changed into mourning? So what's blocking your joy? Is it your anxiety? Is it your circumstances? Is it your bitterness and hatred? Let God roll it away. You can be changed if you want to. A lot of our change is self-inflicted change. Because rolling stones for God, it's no big deal. He just uses his pinky. Second thing, do you know that heaven has a hidden strength that you can tap into by believing in his word? If you believe in his word, things will change. Promise in 2 Peter. Because his word is what made the heavens and the earth. Third thing, do you know that God wants to make you alive? He wants to take your dead life and he wants you to hand it over to him and he will recreate it to something that's incredible. In the book of Ephesians, he says he takes people who are dead in trespasses and sins and he raises them up so they will be trophies for him to glorify how great he is. So do you know that God wants to make you alive or is somebody paying you? 